The story arises out of the early to mid-80s. It's a story of a church in New York City uh, that had seen glorious days of lots of people filling their pews, but they'd come upon a day in which the building was falling down around them. Uh, The congregation had thinned out and the ministry had waned in the vibrancy of this little church. But they had the wisdom of hiring a young pastor who not only carried with him the, uh, the zeal of the Spirit of God, but a, a zealousness in order to make things good again in this old church. So him and his wife, as they were headed into uh, Christmas celebrations, uh, began to, to really spruce the place up. And they were zealously cleaning and doing all kinds of things. They wanted it to be fresh and good and, and awesome. And, and so as they were doing that, it was the uh, night before Christmas Eve, so the day before Christmas Eve. And as they were doing that, the uh, consequences of a recent winter storm and some leakage in the wall behind the, podium, behind the pulpit uh, there was a great chunk of it that just fell out. <laughs> uh, water-soaked plaster all over the place. And they kind of were like exasperated, like, what do we do now? We're working so hard, and now there's this huge hole in the front of the sanctuary. And so uh, they swept up the mess, prayed together, and headed out for what was planned for the afternoon, and that was to go to an auction, a little auction that some neighborhood kids were holding just trying to get rid of some things that they had collected and and raised some money doing so. And at that auction, they were struck by this tablecloth that they saw, a beautiful tablecloth that had lots of worth but had lost a lot of its value. And so uh, they bid on it. They got the tablecloth for a whopping $6.50. But it was a beautiful tablecloth, and they thought, probably just the right size to what? Cover the hole. (laughs) And so they raced back to the church and they began to put the tablecloth up and they began to put it over that hole and they said, oh God, you are so good, this is so great. And they were just getting ready to go home after a very long day when they noticed an older woman sitting at the bus stop right outside the church. And they knew that it was cold, New York, bitter cold, and they knew that the next bus didn't come for 40 minutes. So they approached her and said, Ma'am, can we help you? You can step inside the church, stay warm until the bus comes. And so they engaged in a conversation. Here she was in that neighborhood because she had come for a nanny job, but she didn't get the job because her English was broken and she was up in years. And so they said, listen, just stay uh, here in the church. We'll wait with you. We'll share with you until the bus comes. And so they began to share in stories together. And she all of a sudden noticed the tablecloth hanging at the front of the sanctuary. And they said, where did you get that? And they said, oh, we just got that. Isn't it beautiful? Just got it for six bucks and 50 cents, right? Uh, at, at an auction nearby, there's a big hole behind it. But we don't need to tell you that. It's great. And she, so the pastor begins to tell the whole story, right, of how everything, and she's just mindless to the story, and she just is captivated by the tablecloth. She goes forward, and she's looking at it, and she's looking at it. The pastor keeps rambling. She's ignoring. Some of you know what that's like. And all of a sudden, she grabs the corner of it. As she grabs the corner of the tablecloth, she looks at it. She goes, this is mine. The pastor was confused and said, well, uh, I'm sorry. We bought it for six bucks and 50 cents at an auction. You know, he was trying to excuse himself. And she goes, no, this is, this is mine. You see, I used to live in Vienna, Austria. And in the times of the German invasion, we were scared for our lives. So my husband said to me, why don't you 
go to the U.S. and I'll follow soon behind with all of our possessions. And so I did, but he never came. I just always assumed that he died in a concentration camp somewhere. And I grieve him now 40 years later. But this is mine. And she was as confused as the pastor. And so the pastor's like, well, let me take it down and give it to you. And she goes, no, 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 I'm glad it's being used for a really good reason. And, and so she, let it, she said, well, let me take your address so that when we fix the wall, we can bring your tablecloth back to you. She goes, that would be great. So she writes down her address, and, and, and everything's good. And so the next night, it's Christmas Eve, and this small congregation floods in, and the tablecloth is all the buzz, right? And we go, oh, it's beautiful, and the candlelight, it looks so good, blah, 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 this and that kind of thing. But there's an old man sitting in the congregation. He'd been there for a long time. And he was captivated by the tablecloth. And so after the service, he made his way to the front of the sanctuary. And the pastor again rambled on about the amazing story of the tablecloth. And he just ignored it and made his way to the tablecloth. And he picked up the same corner that she did, which had a monogrammed initials on it. And he said, this is mine. The pastor didn't know what what to say. He goes, by any chance, did you ever live in Vienna? <laughs> he goes, I did. And in the time of the German invasion, I sent my wife to the U.S. and I was soon to follow with my belongings and um, I never found her. I tried and I tried. For years I tried to locate where she would be and where she was and was able, never able to find her. And the pastor said, um, well, hang on. Because I think I know something good's about to happen. And he put that man in his car, and they drove to that address. And that pastor got to watch one of the most beautiful renewals, restorations, reunions that you could ever imagine. The story's true. And the story's true because we have a God who is king of kings. At the center of that story, though some would call it coincidence, some might call it fate, heck, some might even now in this day and age call it karma, there's a good theological, biblical word that I want to attach to it, and it's not coincidence, it's not fate, and it's not karma. It is providence. Providence. Some good theological definitions are available about providence. Here's one. It's a simpler one. It's the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. It's the control of God, the power of God that upholds most things. No, like everything. He, God, directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, some of you are familiar with that. It's a document that we love here at Covenant Church and in our Presbyterian heritage. But it is a document that expresses and defines things like providence. It says this, God who created everything also upholds everything. He directs, regulates and governs every creature, action, and thing, from the greatest to the least, by his completely wise and holy providence. God is in control of everything. 
Now, those are kind of theological, maybe wordy, maybe with words that you go, you're still scratching, you're like, what in the world does that still mean? So if you're with me, simple is better. And so here is my Rick Stoffer simple version of providence. Are you ready? God sees me. Let that rumble in your heads because that's three simple words, but the truth of it is astounding. God sees me. And God loves me. (laughs) And God is always, listen, always working in my life for his glory. Do you know that truth this morning? That God, this is providence, that God sees you, that he loves you, and that he is Eh, 87.2% of the time. Now listen, always working in your life for his glory. Turn to our text this morning. It's 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. If you're just joining us this morning, since January, we've been in a series and looking at the life of Elisha, a study that is reinforce in so many ways the truth of our memory verse, which is on the screen, Revelation 21.5, that says, he who was seated on the throne said what? That is just one of the most... There's no words for that. I just want you to know. So it's, it's, uh, let me try again. He who was seated on the throne said... That's great. And he said, write this down because covenant every once in a while is going to forget this. And these are really good words that are trustworthy and true, right? Listen, and so Elisha's life, this is Elisha's mission in making all things new. So Elisha is a part of this plan of God. He's a part of the providence of God and is making all things new. And we see it again as we've seen it numerous times now. And we apply it to our lives. So 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Hear this great story in the life of Elisha. This is the very word of God. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life back in chapter 4, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine. And it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, by coincidence, by fate, by karma, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. May God help us to understand and see his good providence even in this text. 
So I want you to see providence in the text. I want you to see that God sees this Shunammite woman. The woman in this story is not new to us. If you've been uh, here in this ongoing series, we've seen already evidence of God seeing her. We've seen evidence of God loving her. And we've seen evidence of God working on her behalf in chapter 4. Hopefully you remember God saw her in her infertility. She was a a great woman. She was an influential woman. She was a a woman who was a leader in her community. and, And she was a woman, not a Jew, but a lover of God. That God saw her in her infertility and the pain of childlessness and Elisha is tasked with telling her that she will have a son. And she does. Later in that same chapter, God saw her in probably the greatest crisis of her life. The child given to her, now a bit older, got sick and dies. But Elisha is sought after. He comes and lays on the child and the child is restored to full life. Hopefully this is making some recall. Right? From chapter 4. Now in chapter 8, Elisha is called on once again by God to show this woman, now a widow, that he sees her, that he loves her, and that he is working in her life for his glory. Elisha goes to her, knowing that a famine is coming on the land, instructs her to leave her home and her small farm and get to someplace better suited. So she does. It's amazing the obedience of this woman. She heads for the land of the Philistines, which is known for rich and fertile soil. Now, pause here. Pause here just for a second and witness the eyes of God upon this woman. God has written into his plan a famine as he judges Israel. That's a confusing thought that God would write into his plan a famine, but that's another sermon. (laughs) Right? But he writes into that plan a famine. But as he does so, he goes to this woman whom he sees and whom he loves and whom he wants to use. And he, through Elisha, says a famine is coming. It's not the first time, nor will be the last time, that God tells of his people of incoming hardship. But he comes to this woman and says there will be a famine. It will last seven years and you need to get out of town. It wasn't good news to her that she would have to uproot her already struggling family, that she would be a sojourner. Did you hear that? A sojourner in the land of Philistine. She didn't go and just buy another house and hang out in Philistine for uh, seven years. She was a sojourner. She probably lived in tents and from here and to there and along the way. She was in enemy territory. She was not going to be well received in this land. This was a hard seven years in which she endured, but she endured there because she would endure there better than she would have endured at her home in the midst of famine. And she is confident as she sojourns in the prophet and even more so confident in her God, listen, who sees her. So this is what she does. It is the same confidence that has her return after the prescribed seven years. The story continues. The seven years come to a close. The woman obediently returns to see that her home and farm is being used. And so she needs to go to the king to appeal that her property could be restored to her, right? So she comes back after seven years. The the house and the farm are not empty. They're being used by someone, probably now property of the government, and so someone is in them, and so she does what you would do. She runs to the king, and she begins to appeal to say, listen, I had to leave for seven years, but I'm back now, and I need my property. And and all of that is cool, but then 
this is where it gets really cool, right? This is a really, not coincidence, not fate, not karma, but a God who sees this woman, a God who loves this woman, and a God who is always working for this woman, a God who always listens, who always finishes what he starts. As she is coming to the king to appeal to get her land back, God has already orchestrated a conversation. <laughs> a conversation between the king and Gehazi, the same Gehazi that was the former servant of Elisha. Now, take a breath here. Uh, for those of you that have been with us, this should create some confusion. Because not too long ago, we saw Gehazi, and he was disobedient to the direction of Elisha, and therefore to God, and was, uh, was reaping consequences. I, and if you remember when uh, the... the um, when Naaman, the Syrian, was healed of his leprosy, uh, uh, Gehazi went after him to try to get some reward from the reality of the healing, which Elisha was unwilling to do. And so Elisha actually says, uh, listen, if you want what Gehazi has, I'll give you what he has, and he gives him leprosy. So Gehazi is a leper in chapter 5, and here he is in the presence of the king. That should create some confusion, you Bible scholars. Like, why in the world is now Gehazi reappearing and he's given... Pre because if you remember as well, a leper is a one who is ostracized, who's, who's isolated. He's put out of the community. He's not allowed to be a part of the community. certainly wouldn't be allowed to be in the presence of the king. And he certainly wouldn't be there to give the king counsel. <laughs> so how does Gehazi get here? That's a great question that, quite frankly, nobody knows the answer to. But I have an idea. Is anybody interested in my idea? So this is one of those places that, you know, if you remember Lost in Space, I go, warning, Will Robinson, warning, Will Robinson, right? Because this is a Rick Stoffer with a couple other commentators maybe thinking that this is, might be what's happening. But I love this story that I'm about to share with you as an idea, not biblically, but one that many have leaned into because I think it supports the reality that this text is really about the providence of God. Are you ready? I don't know if you remember last week, some of you, a hard time last week, let alone chapter 4 and chapter 5. But if you remember last week, there were three lepers outside the city that were the ones chosen by God to go to the Syrian army to find a way that they might be rescued and then, therefore, all of Israel. There are some that suppose that Gehazi was one of them. So cool story, by virtue of consequence of his disobedience, Gehazi is struck with leprosy. He now is a part of a trio, Larry, Moe, and Curly, that goes into Syria, and they, are by their obedience, find this plethora of food, and they serve Israel by sharing with Israel. And by virtue of that, is it not possible that Gehazi would receive mercy from his God and be healed of his leprosy? And even more so, would he not find mercy and favor from his king, that he would go, hey, why don't you come tell me a little bit about what happened with Elisha? Warning, Will Robinson. Doesn't say that in the Bible, but that's a cool story, isn't it? That Gehazi is this very one, now touched by God, and now in the presence of the king. Whether that's the story or not, we have this amazing scenario, don't we? This amazing scenario of the reality of Gehazi and the king having a conversation about the reality of the power of God 
And Gehazi is saying, yeah, I remember this one day, it wasn't all that long ago, that, that, that Elisha had this Shunammite woman whom he had literally prophesied that she would be pregnant, and she was, and then her son died, and then he laid on her son, and, and, he was, and he, he's telling the story, and all of a sudden, hey, somebody see you, king. And, and here comes the Shunammite woman. And Gehazi's going, yeah, it was her. <laughs> it was her. Sort of like taking the, the corner of the tablecloth and going, this is mine. We see the providence of God. And so the Shunammite woman kind of goes, yeah, that's what happened. But I need my property. <laughs> and the king then says, not only do you get your property, but everything that was, your property had uh, produced for the last seven years, you, we will give you equal to that as well. She was blessed. Now, uh, imagine the party that kind of happens in the king's chambers there. When they realize all of these things coming together, is it fate? Is it coincidence? Or is it the king of kings? Now, I'll separate them out. The king here is probably a guy by the name of Jehoram, sometimes referred to as Joram. And, and he comes from a really bad line of people, right? If you remember, Ahab was his father. Ahaziah was his brother. They were both evil kings in Israel. It's a line that has rejected God. So it is really intriguing here to see this king's interest in the work of Elisha. It's interesting to see his kindness to Gehazi and his grace to the woman in giving her property back. And then some. Does, does it mean that this is his conversion story? Like there was an organist, Mary was in the background playing just as I am, and here he comes forward and, oh man, God's good, everything's good. No, I don't think it is because we find the same king later uh, executing all kinds of bad decisions in the name of Israel against the name of God. So I don't think it's a conversion story, but I do think it's interesting that this conversation of God has him intrigued. And how about Gehazi? Listen, one who sought after money and fame and did so in disobedience, one that we might say wandered from the fold, but now is again seeing and talking about the hand of God, seemingly restored and watching God once again do his thing, how cool would it have been for him to once again be a part of the work of God, to see the hand of God? Kind of like a Peter moment, maybe one that we're more familiar with. Peter is one who denied Christ three times, and then as Christ resurrected, uh, Christ met him on the beach and said three times, Peter, I love you. <laughs> and he restores him into ministry and, 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 and pushes him to the reality of being an apostle that would see tons and tons of people come to Christ. Right? It had to be kind of the feeling, Gehazi, I screwed up. I denied him. I did the wrong thing. I disobeyed. But here I am, now healed, now in the presence of the king, having an opportunity to talk about my king, the king of kings. And then there's this steady, faithful Shunammite woman uh, just doing what God tells her to do and watching him do his thing. And, and here seeing God not only restore her land but giving her the blessing of everything that she might have lost in her seven years. Certainly there's excitement once again probably in this Shunammite woman. But I don't know, there's part of me that sees the Shunammite woman going, yeah, like God does this in my life all the time. Like 
I could tell you again the stories that get a lot of press, you know, my infertility and I had a child, then my child died. But listen, I've, I've seen it from my crops growing to the reality of my children growing to all these things. And, I, and she's like, yeah, I just, I just kind of anticipate that God's going to do crazy things. So this conversation, yeah, it's just part of the day, right? And, and I can see them all in the king's chambers looking at one another, all with very different thoughts, but all of them focused on a God that has somehow brought them all together at this moment. And Elisha's not even there, but somehow I imagine Elisha knowing or later hearing the story and just smiling because God in his providence always, listen, always finishes what he starts So maybe a good question for us this morning is, who are we? Who are we? You're here this morning or listening online and still living in a place of, "Ah, I'm not sure about that God guy. Still living in unbelief as the king did that day, but curious about the work of God. Curious maybe enough to come and sit in a red pew with purple carpet. Curious enough to come today. Curious enough to click on and say, listen, I'll listen to this guy. Right? The reality, there's a curiosity of who God is, even though I'm not sure that I'm really at a place of belief. Someone like the king. If that is you, then I say, come on. Because it's true. God sees you. God loves you. And God is working in your life for his good. That's why he has you here. Don't allow your curiosity as the king's curiosity did to wane again into unbelief. Are we the king? Are we Gehazi? Coming back from a time of wandering, maybe just a time of apathy, a time of laziness in your spiritual journey, maybe a time of struggle and questioning, maybe a time in which you just couldn't get over the reality of your sin and feeling unworthy before a holy God, maybe wondering if God is ever ready to look your way again. I say this morning to you, peer into the eyes of Gehazi, who may have wondered if he would ever be seen by God or used by God ever again, and now a central character in the outworking of the miracle of God and the plan of God. God loves to reclaim his lost sheep. I tell you, Gehazi's here today. God loves to reclaim his lost sheep. To do miracles in your life, to restore you and to draw you back, and then to use you. Yes, use you. For his glory. He desires to let you know this morning that he sees you and that he loves you and that he has plans for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're the steady Shunammite woman, right? You're sitting here today because you're like, you know, life is never easy, amen? Life is never easy. I mean, I feel like sometimes I've been told about the famine and said to go away and, and sojourn for seven years, right? The reality is, is that, but man, I just keep trusting God because I just keep watching God do his thing. Life is not like the prosperity preacher promised that I would be rich and happy all the time, but no matter where I go, I see the hand of God. And while I don't always understand it, right, I know that I can trust it. So there is a growing expectation that God not only sees me and loves me, but he is at work even in the struggle that I walk. And we wait, 
we wait with expectation to see him do the miracles once again in our midst. Are you the steady Shunammite woman? Or are you the prophet, uh, the messenger of hope that Elisha was, who stands with confidence in what God is doing and proclaims it to the unbelieving, who embraces the returning, and who lovingly cheers on the unwavering, who is a voice of hope, hope in that we can know that God sees us, God loves us, and God is working in our lives for his glory. Irregardless of who you are, whether you're the king in unbelief, Gehazi in the wander, the Shunammite woman in the steadiness, or the prophet who is the proclaimer, no matter who you are, irregardless of who you are, I want to invite you to a party this morning. Ready for a party? Oh yeah, come on. It's at this table. I mean, sometimes we come to this table and... We're mindful of the death of Christ, but this morning, I want us to come to this table to see the providence of the death of Christ in our lives that is the very thing that saved us. And that's worthy of party. As all the worlds came together for the Shunammite woman, Gehazi and the king, the worlds come together at this table for us this morning. We commune with God here today. So, so, so maybe this my weird imagination. Maybe this, imagine a conversation happening in the heavenlies between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And you walk in. And they go, Stoffer, we were just talking about you. And you go, oh no. And they say, no, 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 listen. It's all good. We saw you. We loved you. And we chose you to be used for our glory. (laughs) Man, how this table has changed that conversation. Maybe most of all, how we are seen by God. So as we head to the table, let me share with you this morning, very personally, that God sees you but then tell you through Ephesians 1 how he sees you. Because you might be a little fearful of the fact that God would see you, and I want to erase your fears. Because if you are a believer in Christ, Ephesians 1 tells us some amazing things in which he sees when he looks at you. You ready? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. When he sees you, Christian, he sees you in possession of all of the spiritual blessings. They're yours. You stand in the middle of them. That's how he sees you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be ready. This is how he sees you. Holy and blameless before him. Look at somebody you love today and go, you're holy and blameless. Go ahead. You're holy. 
family. And said, Pastor, you don't know me. You don't know what I did before I came to church. You don't know what I did for the guy that cut me off while I was pulling into the church parking lot. I, I, but I, I don't. But the reality is, is how God sees you today is not by any hand gesture that you have given, but he sees you holy and blameless. Why? Because of this table. It says that he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless. Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, uh, these are each sermons, tells us that God, out of his love for us, predestined us for adoption as sons, daughters, through Jesus Christ, and that this was according to his purpose and for his praise. His purpose was to determine that you were his and his alone. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 tells us that in Jesus we have redemption, that we are restored like Gehazi through his blood and that we are forgiven of our sin and all according to the providence of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom. The smartest thing God could do, he says, was to lavish on us grace. That's how he sees you. It's how he loves you. That's how he desires to use you. Ephesians 1.9 tells us that God has entrusted to us the mystery of his will. So God, in all of his mysteries, he's going to entrust to us the mystery of his will and his purpose. Telling us what it is that we can look forward to for all eternity. Here it is. You're going to be with me. You're going to be with me. For all eternity. I see you. I love you. And you will be with me. That's the mystery of my world. So that's a mystery for me. Like, why would he pick me? That's a real mystery. But he has. And that's how he sees me. That's how he loves me. I said it just be a few. We've turned into many. But one more. Ephesians 1, 13, 14 tells us that God has not only done all of this for us, but that he has sealed us for all eternity through the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Because God knew me, right? And he knew, said, then I'm going to save Stoffer, and here's the moment, and here's the way, and, and my good providence in his life. And, and he's going to be excited for at least 10.2 seconds, and then he's going to start running the other way. Sound familiar? But, but Ephesians 1 tells us, I think there's a large rubber band stuck to my behind. And I can run as far as I want and as fast as I want, but at some point I'm going, whoa. Why? Because he has sealed me. He says, not only have I chosen you before the foundation of the world, but man, I, I know you're going to run. You're a runner. I know you're going to run, but I'm going to seal you with my Holy Spirit because you are never getting away. Did you hear that this morning? That's how God sees you. Through this table. That's worthy of a party. Does he see you for all the wonderful things you've done? No. Quite frankly, it has nothing to do with you. But rather what Jesus has done for you in spite of you. Has he left it up to you to live your life? <laughs> no. He's ordered your life. 
Is God scrambling in the heavens when things go awry? COVID comes. Oh, no, what are we going to do with this? No. He says, these are the very things that I will use for you to be dependent on me. He saw you before you were born, and he loved you to himself, and now is working in your life for his glory. This is providence, and it is worthy of a party at this table. God sees you this morning, and he sees you as his child. Yesterday, I was um, at Jeff Gordon's house. Many of you know who Jeff is. He was doing a fundraiser um, that uh, I got to enjoy uh, for Highway to Heaven Ministries. And uh, he was making rib dinners and half chicken dinners. (laughs) Sucker for rib dinners right here, right? And and so uh, I took a buddy of mine and we went over to get the rib dinners. I helped him set up and... uh, paid him whatever he asked me to pay him to get a rib dinner. And, and at that uh, setup, one of his grandchildren were there. He was 11, and he was wearing a sweatshirt, and it said king. And it was in an emblem of a crown. This is an 11-year-old. And I noticed him, and I said, um, I won't use his name. I said, uh, I love your sweatshirt. And he looked at his sweatshirt, and as a 25-year-old, this 11-year-old looked at me, maybe as a 45, I don't know, he looked at me and he says, this is who I am. He didn't do that out of braggadocious way. He did that truly out of a way as an 11-year-old that said, this is my king. And he sees me as his (laughs) And I kind of crumbled and then smelt ribs and go back up again. Do we know who we are? Do we know how it is that God sees us? Do we recognize the providence of God this morning that has got us here? Corey Tenboom writes in The Hiding Place. Um, you're familiar with Corey Tenboom in The Hiding Place. Corey Tenboom was an amazing woman of God who endured much again in World War II. I'm stuck on World War II illustrations this morning. Um, but uh, in uh, the reality of her home country, uh, was faced with all kinds of incredible decisions that she had to make uh, with regard to protecting Jewish people in the midst of World War II. And Corey Tenboom, at the very beginning of that war, uh, recalls a evening in which she was uh, just kept awake by uh, the loud noise of uh, the airplanes going overhead and the artillery being fired uh, in her hometown. And she just couldn't sleep, and so she was restless. And as she was restless, she heard her younger sister, Betsy, get up and go into the kitchen. And so um, she, being restless herself, decided, well, I may as well join Betsy in the kitchen. So she got up and went into the kitchen with Betsy, and they had a cup of tea. And as the artillery fire calmed down, as the planes subsided, they both went back to bed. Corey went into her room, and as she went to pat her pillow in the darkness, she felt a searing cut in her hand. She ran to turn on the lights, and when she turned on the lights, there was a 10-inch piece of shrapnel through her pillow. She cried for her sister, Betsy, Betsy. And as Betsy is addressing the wound on her hand, she goes, Betsy, what if? And Betsy wisely interrupted her and said, listen, there are no what ifs 
in the safety of God's will. See, Corey was thinking, if I'm laying there, I'm dead. But what if, no what ifs, God arose you to the kitchen to protect you and to love you. There are no what ifs in God's economy. The providence of God tells us that God sees everything, and this morning he sees you. Whether it be the reunion of a couple after 40 years, or this amazing story of Corey Ten Boom's life, or the astounding story of the return of the Shunammite woman, the point is the same. God sees us. He loves us, and he is always working according to his will for our good and for his glory. And it is the providence of God that brings us to this table this morning to remind us of who we are through the death and resurrection of Jesus. There are no ifs in God's world. The center of his will is our safety, and there is no safer place. No matter what you might be going through this morning, there is no safer place than this table.